Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Introducing the No Fucks Given podcast with Sarah Knight. I'm the New York Times bestselling anti-guru behind some of your favorite sweary self-help books. You know the ones. And now I'm giving life-changing, no-bullshit advice every Tuesday in 2021. From mental health to motivation to boundaries, goal-setting, confidence, and more. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Radio.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Your Book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan, and if you're new to the podcast, I'd love to tell you about my first novel, Insatiable, which is out next week and available to pre-order. Stuck in a dead-end job, broken-hearted, broke and estranged from her best friend, Violet's life is nothing like she thought it would be. She wants more. Better friends, better sex, a better job, and she wants it now. So when Lottie, who looks exactly like the woman Violet wants to be when she grows up, offers Violet the chance to join her exciting startup, she bites. Only it soon becomes clear that Lottie and her husband Simon are not only inviting Violet into their company, they're also inviting her into their lives. Insatiable is a grazia, stylist, cosmopolitan, eye paper, red and independent book of the year for 2021. Early reader Marion Keyes said, Feckin' fabulous. It was a huge pleasure to read. I missed it when I was away from it. Signed copies are available from Waterstones, Foils, Blackwells and the Seven Oaks Bookshop with more independent bookshops to come. I know lots of you have already pre-ordered a copy and I can't thank you enough. It really is the very best way to support the podcast. One day in the not too distant future, we will meet again at a book festival and I'll buy you a jug of Pims and an ice cream. Now, on to today's guest. Kate Moss is a prolific novelist and her books are beloved. Her latest, The City of Tears, is her second book in the best-selling Burning Chambers series, but it can be read and loved as a standalone story, a sweeping adventure that takes us to war-ravaged France in 1572. Kate is the founder-director of the Women's Prize for Fiction. She is a passionate reader and a dedicated cheerleader for women and their creative work. We talked about Toni Morrison, Kate's early Agatha Christie addiction, and the triumphs and trials of setting up one of the most highly regarded literary prizes going. Are there any books that you have discovered over this winter during the, the cosy nights in, or books that you return to um, when you want some cheer? I don't know about you, Daisy, when it started, but I, reading is, is my, the thing that I can always rely on. And in the first lockdown, I found it quite hard to concentrate. I found it quite hard to read and to write, and really hard to write. And so 
essentially for all of the lockdown, I haven't really changed my behavior from first lockdown, now we're in lockdown three. I have reread, I think now it's a, I'm up to about 230 classic golden age crime novels. So I've reread all of Agatha Christie, all of Naomi Marsh, all of Josephine Tay, all of Marjorie Allingham, all of Patricia Wentworth. You know, I'm just working my th way through those incredible women of the 30s and 40s and 50s. And so I feel I exist in that sort of world where people talk about stockings and gloves and her hat was worn wrong. Um, and it's been, that's been it for me, rereading familiar favourites. And it's been the, the thing that has given me great, great pleasure, actually, and great comfort. It's felt very naughty. <laughs> oh, and I can imagine as well, you know, going back into that world of the sort of 30s, 40s, 50s, where there are enough, you know, signposts and points to recognise, but also it does feel so thrillingly far from here. Uh, with crime novels, do you find in rereading them, that you have more of a sense of the, the mechanics of the mystery? Are you a person who likes to work it out as you go along or would you like to be surprised by the reveal and the twist? Well, I think at the moment, because everything in the world is so surprising, the last thing I want is to be surprised by anything. Um, and so the thing is that when I'm rereading, I, I mean, I've just finished rereading all the Miss Marples for the umpteenth time. And almost every single one I start, I can remember, I know who done it. But that's not the point. And as you say, it's about looking at the brilliance of the plotting, about the way that the tiny bits of characterization give you the clues that you could sort, you know, solve things for yourself. I never solve crime. I love reading crime fiction, but I never, ever, ever get it right. But I think it's it's familiarity um, is what I like about crime. And I also think I love about crime and adventure fiction too, obviously, which is what I write, but I like the sense that there is an ordered world, and then something happens to disrupt the order. But by the end of the crime novel or the end of the adventure fiction, order is restored. And I think that's what I'm liking so much at the moment. I don't want things that are open-ended. I don't want things that are gonna make me overly think. I'm thinking too much as it is. I want, you know, I want the sense that there is there is some level of control. You know, there's always a full stop in a good crime novel. It's the crime is sorted, justice is served, and you can go on your way. And that perfect ordered world, I think we're rather missing. And, and that's what I, that's what I'm thinking, no doubt. The restoration of order is like a literary grand designs. And you know when the exactly. bulldozer is there, it's like we're a million pounds over budget and we live in the caravan. You know, eventually, <laughs> Kevin uh, McLeod's going to come right. and say it's Eight years later, the staircase is built. Yes, exactly. <laughs> no more chaos. I don't want any more chaos. Uh, with those classic crime writers, I'm curious about um, when you read them for the first time, when you discovered that sort of vintage mm. fiction. Marjorie Allingham, I feel like, doesn't get mentioned. Oh, no, Marjorie Allingham, absolutely. I've, I've been reading her as well. I love Marjorie Allingham. And I think she sometimes gets overlooked because her um, sense of the particularity of the world she's in and where people's sit in society and things is quite pronounced. So when you go back into those, there, there are things that jar a bit more than possibly some of the others that are, you know, a little bit more wide ranging, you know. Um, I, you know, I love Dorothy L. Sayers and I love the whimsy stories, but, you know, Harriet Vane is an incredibly strong character in those. Whereas I think sometimes Marjorie Allingham gets a little bit caught up in the, the society with the capital S side of things. I think what's what's so fascinating about um, all of those golden age um, writers is that they are a breed of really 
strong female authors writing female-led stories. And I fell in love with them because with, you know, started with the greatest, you know, Agatha Christie with a Marple, because I think Miss Marple is the most underrated, most subversive female character in literature. You know, she's everything that's wrong with the world. Old women ignored, overlooked, not taken seriously, patronized, but then bam, in she comes, solves it when everybody else has failed. And I remember very, very clearly being on a family holiday in Devon in August. Because it was a family holiday in Devon in August, obviously it was pouring with rain the entire time. And I can remember the smell of the, you know, the paraffin heaters and everything was slightly damp all the time. And I have two younger sisters and, you know, trying to keep three children entertained indoors, you know, all, you know, the, you know, that is the childhood of the 60s and the 70s, which is when I grew up. And I found on that holiday house bookcase, this novel that was called The Body in the Library. And it was the old Fontana edition with that wonderful sort of, you know, long stalk of a telephone where you held it, you know, hello, hello. <laughs> and I got it off the shelf and I read it in, you know, in a day from start to finish. I, I must've been 13 or so, I guess. And I genuinely think that Agatha Christie therefore was the first author I properly discovered for myself. And I can really clearly remember saying to my wonderful mum who, didn't you know put me down at all she was really encouraging saying i read i really enjoyed this book um i wonder if she's written any others <laughs> 66 novels and you know 12 collections of short stories you know but that was the joy because then it was like oh my god you know when you discover a brilliant writer and then you discover they've only written one other novel and your heart is broken so it was it was perfect and it's always been my private passion and I it's not an area I write in it turns you know that's my go-to book for relaxation is a good old-fashioned crime story oh I'm just imagining that moment when you realize that there were more and so many more and this and, abundance. You know, and the thing is Daisy that what is even more extraordinary because when you're growing up you don't think like this I mean now we know and you're a writer I'm a writer we talk to other writers but I when I was growing up I I think I thought all writers were dead. You know, you know, obviously they were in the past. Mm. And it was only years later that I realized that at that moment, when I was sitting in Devon, not far from where Agatha Christie had grown up and her beloved house and where she had lived, you know, she's so associated with Devon, um, <laughs> that she was still alive. You know, that, that, when I realized that, that blew my mind that I could have somehow, I don't know, gone down and knocked on the door and said, hello. <laughs> I'm your newest fan. You know, it's it's that, isn't it? You just don't realise that the authors that you read are still alive and working because everything you study at school is by authors that are long dead. You know. Well, even I remember when I was very little reading Roald Dahl, and did he die? Was it 1990 or 1991? Yeah, really recently. But yes. On um, when I was reading all those books, I guess that was just when I suppose maybe I was like I'd be sort of seven or eight, so 92, 93. So I just missed him and really feeling <laughs> quite kind of, you know, really grieving, obviously very, you know, problematic man in all kinds of ways that they didn't know yeah. that when I was seven or eight. But that idea that even something that felt very fresh and contemporary to me yeah. came from the past. I found that quite, quite chilling. And I always used to like skip that page. And to make yeah. sure I didn't see the introduction <laughs> so I could make it not true, that he could yeah. be alive <laughs> in my writing You know, I can remember really, really clearly, very, very early on, just after I've written my first book, 
which was a non-fiction book. Um, it came out in 1993. And I was invited to talk about it at Dartington in, um, again, down you know, towards Devon and walking around the gardens with Margaret Drabble and her husband, Michael Holroyd. And it being, I read Michael Holroyd as part of studying and I read English at university. And I can still remember the kind of excitement of thinking, this is it. I've written a book and now I can walk around a garden with the great Michael Holroyd and the incredible novelist, Margaret Drabble. And, and of course, since then, of course, I now know loads and loads and loads of writers and we're just very normal folk who, you know, at least through the lockdown are being liberated to live as we prefer in slippers and tracksuit bottoms and we don't really have to go out and all of this sort of stuff. But then that, that moment of thinking I've been let into some gilded world, you know, I've never forgotten that. And, and I think that is one of the joys about being a reader as well as being a writer, that in the end, and we've all seen it during lockdown, books really matter. They really are the things that sustain us and change our minds and keep us going. And all these little moments that you can look back as you, you know, as you get older and think, yeah, it's just another reminder that books really matter. And that they wait for us as well. I just read a proof of the new um, Catherine Heine novel, which I believe is out in the UK in April. It's called Early Morning Riser. And I loved it. It's sort of very, very funny and kind of gentle but dark. And people had been saying to me for quite a while, oh, you must read her, her book, Standard Deviation. Her novel is very funny. It's very great. Mm. And I was like, yes, I will. I will. I must. I know. I'll get around to it. And then that amazing moment of you know just falling in love and knowing this I don't know yeah. that there, you know when you think just how much of that there is to discover and all these things but you know yeah. like this time next year we could have new favorite books that we don't even know exist right now absolutely and very probably haven't even been written yet <laughs> as you know we're all a bit late in our delivery there's no excuse now for being too late delivering books obviously you can't say I'm sorry I was really busy <laughs> Uh, what a nightmare. My whole career is now transformed by not being able to use the excuse of I wasn't at home. <laughs> <laughs> Have you always, because of course, you know, with the, the Women's Prize, I um, imagine, you know, there are lots of real iconic authors who have, uh, you know, been in your orbit. Are you always quite cool and quite professional or have you ever really been overwhelmed with the urge to fangirl at someone? I'm always, I would hope, professional but I am never cool um, in that I am, I am a real fan of, of writers and particular books. And I know, and you know, Daisy, as well, it's really hard to finish a novel, let alone write one that will keep a reader gripped from page after page, let alone write one that you are proud of yourself as the author. And so I remain, even, you know, I was a reader a long time before I was a writer. And I would still say that reader comes top of my list. You know, it's the thing I do every day and I don't write every day. And I think that I still am in awe of, of everybody who has an idea and gets it down and, and finishes it. I mean, I think for, for all of us, we should remember that that is, it is an achievement to finish it. You know, everybody can do the first couple of chapters maybe, but to just keep going. And it's hard work to finish a book. It's the best job in the world, but it's also hard work, as you know. Um, so I do, I do feel really thrilled when I meet people whose work I really, really admire. 
And there've been a couple of people. The first one, the only time actually, Daisy, I, I have to confess this, that I was so starstruck that I failed to go over and introduce myself. And it was the very, very first Women's Prize for Fiction back in 1996-7. And obviously, therefore, I should have gone and introduced myself. And Iris Murdoch came. And it was before people knew about her diagnosis um, of Alzheimer's. And it was, I later learned, one of the very last public things she did. And that setting up the prize had been really combative. I'd spent five months being attacked in the press. You know, you know what it's like. Any women that, woman that does anything for other women is jumped on from a great height. And it was, it was bad. And I felt I was, I was completely resolute. We all were. And we all felt the prize was a brilliant idea. But it had been a tough old few months. And when I saw Iris Murdoch, the Iris Murdoch, looking like every painting of Iris Murdoch you've ever seen, standing in the room. I just thought, you know, I actually don't care if anybody else comes now, because she, who I admire so much, is here. And that, and I didn't go and say hi, who <laughs> introduced myself. It was just like, oh my God. And of course, then there was another, never another opportunity to do that. But then there are other people that I've met, like um, mainly interviewed, not so much to do with it. The Women's Prize, but certainly to do with interviewing when I used to have a book show. Um, Toni Morrison, completely extraordinary. Um, Maya Angelou, completely extraordinary. Um, some of those writers who are now extraordinary, but I remember very, very early on meeting uh, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, which she was shortlisted for the Women's Prize for her first, her debut novel. And, um, you know, she was brand new on the scene, as it were. And she, there was a, you know, something to her. And actually, I would say Anna Burns as well. She was um, shortlisted very early on in the Women's Prize for her uh, first novel, many, many, many years before she won the Booker Prize for Milkman. And she had this real inner something. And I still feel it's just you. I expect you feel this. It's just wonderful to meet the people who've written the books that mean something to you. Um, and you do have to be careful not to gush too much. I'm not. I'm quite bad at gushing, you know, I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm really good at gushing. I'm, I gush too much is what I mean, <laughs> you know. But at the same time, I think, I still think that it's our, our duty almost, if, if we are that way inclined, if we are optimistic people, which despite everything I am, I think enthusiasm is good. I think telling people you think they're great is a good thing to do. I think there's far too much knocking down and tall poppy syndrome stuff. Yes. And I think telling someone that you love their book, I love it when people do it to me. I bet you love it when they come up and say, I love your novel, Daisy. And you go, okay, yeah, you know. <laughs> At the same time, it's wonderful. And I, and I therefore feel that people can always tell me to pipe down. But telling people you think they've done a great thing is, is what we need. Optimism and positivity. <laughs> Oh, I wanted to ask you about um, Toni Morrison, because I know that you've mentioned, um, I think I read an interview where you said that one of the books, if you were sort of, you know, awful, heaven for fen, but gun to your head situation, the bluest eyes would be the book that yeah, you, yeah, yeah. you'd keep by you. Um, when did you first um, encounter that? Yeah, The Bluest Eye is, I think it published in 1970, and it's Toni Morrison's debut novel. And I think, although... I, I don't know what any, you know, the, the judgment of her greatest novels or all of these things, so many great novels. Um, but for me, The Bluest Eye remains the one that meant the most to me. 
And I encountered it, at, you know, in the early 80s, at the end of university or just when I'd left university. Um, my reading was quite narrow. Um, you know, I very much, and I grew up in a village in Sussex, uh, about a mile and a half from where I live. And my sisters are both round the corner, even closer to where we grew up. Um, and I read the books that children read in the 60s and then the 70s at school. And I went to university at the beginning of the 80s. And I did quite an old fashioned English degree, although it was fantastic. And the only modern, anything after Jane Austen that you could do really was, there was an American literature paper. And I had a young American tutor woman who was brilliant. And she introduced me to a whole range of writers that I had, you know, shamefully not come across. Um, Toni Morrison was one of them. Um, Adrienne Rich, the great poet, essayist, activist, um, was another. Flannery um, O'Connor was another. So many of those very, very interesting writers, women writers of the, ninth, uh, of the 20th century. And with the bluest eye, I still think, I, th I, I so, so deeply believe that sometimes we can learn about the world that we need to learn about better through fiction than we do from nonfiction on the subject. Uh, not because the nonfiction isn't crucial and important, and I write nonfiction as well, and there are obviously in incredibly important books about race and identity and white privilege and all of these things that are nonfiction coming out now and, and brilliantly selling. But I think that quite often with big issues, when you're reading a novel and therefore you think about the issues because you've fallen in love with the character or you care about the character or you want to protect the character, sometimes a whole world is opened up to you in a completely different way because you go into it with your heart open rather than going into a, a book with your mind focused. Mm. So that for me is sometimes the difference between fiction and nonfiction. And with The Bluest Eye, it is the story of a young black girl in the deep south, very abused, very um, poor, and the ways that she tries to find her identity and negotiate her life. And the title comes from you know, the simplicity of a child thinking, the kind of understanding without understanding what it is, not giving it a name, that if she had blue eyes, then life would be really different. And for me, it was like, yes, that's, that's, that explains better than anything I've ever read. The complete iniquity of judging a person by their skin color, by where they come from, by their accent, the, the way that all the isms work, you know, the way that the status quo protects itself from anybody who is not them. And that's white male gaze, basically. And so that novel for me was incredibly um, important. And it was also a real wake up call about how absolutely naive and how little I knew, really, you know, as a girl growing up in a village in Sussex in the 60s. Very, very different book. But one of the books that I read last year, do you know um, Corregidora by Gail Jones? Virago I know of it. I haven't read it yet. What I love about Corregidora is the messiness and the anger and the rawness and this idea of being, you know, someone who is sort of unapologetic like sexually very very frank in her in her desires and there's so much sort of cognitive dissonance in her world I don't know if you've read um, Women's Prize winner by Ema McBride 
a girl yes. is a half-formed thing. I think that as well, that sort of um, sense of the real violence and self-harm and self-loathing, as well as the desire to inflict outwards. And the, the brilliance of people who can write unsympathetic characters. I think women are often encouraged to write, oh, you know, but nobody's going to like her. Yeah, well, that's not necessarily the only criteria by which you should be judging a character. Do you like them? You know, they do that for your friends, sure, but in the books. And I think with The Bluest Eye is that sense that these things are more complicated than often they are presented mm, as. Yes. Um, so there are shades of everything in, in these books. And, you know, it's the opposite to what I'm reading, you know, all my golden age crime fiction, where there is a full stop and there is a sense that there is an answer. Um, in these books, it, they, they reflect more accurately the world and, and real human messy emotions, because there's often not an answer. And I'm so glad that all of those things can exist in the reading world. Yeah. <laughs> we can read them and love them in, in different ways. You may well have been asked this before, but <laughs> if you could go back and award some prizes for books pre-prize are there any that you'd love to to single out no I mean maybe maybe favorite books but I was thinking more books that because I know you're so good as well writers who who are under read yes yes well I I think um this this is such a cliche but I genuinely think that Wuthering Heights changed what it was possible for women to write so it's not just that it's a, a novel that means enormously much to me. Um, you know, it was published in the middle of the 19th century, a year before she died, Emily Bronte died. It was her only novel, although she was a beautiful, beautiful poet. The grief and tragedy that everybody in that family endured in terms of the loss of their mother, and then their aunt who was bringing them up, and then all the siblings. You know, I mean, it's, it's just the most... And although Patrick Bronte, the father, comes out of things quite badly often you just imagine that old man left in the house with the ghosts of all of those people all of his six children and his wife and his sister-in-law all gone um but the thing about Wuthering Heights is that I think matters so much is that it was a novel of great ambition it was a novel that refused to be appropriate in terms of what women should or shouldn't write about some of the reviews said things like if I had written this novel I would kill myself you know, it was seen as immoral and immoral. It didn't fit into any acceptable idea of what a 19th century Victorian novel should be. The moralizing was absent. The church is present as an iniquitous and hypocritical arrangement. It's about domestic violence. It's about race. It's about obsession. The one thing it isn't is a love story, as we know. But I just still feel that that novel, which has never been out of print, and she never knew how important that novel would be. You know, uh, when she died, uh, she was buried and it was the smallest coffin of an adult that had ever been buried in Haworth. Um, and they found in her desk drawer all the cuttings of the reviews of the novel. Um, and nobody even knew that she cared that much because she was very distant from the world, but she, she clearly had read all these terrible, terrible reviews of it. And so, you know, the, the story behind the story is heartbreaking as well. But I genuinely think it changed the possibilities for women who wrote. Um, and in a way that, although obviously Charlotte Bronte is a great, great novelist and Anne Bronte is underrated, they still do follow a certain sort of Victorian expectation. I've grown up, you know, studying Jane Austen and God love her. I think she's brilliant, but enough with the bonnets and the pianos. 
um, you know, what about the real, real messiness of life, the violence and the hardship of life? And of course, you're going, you get all of that with Dickens uh, as well. So Wuthering Heights for me would win all the prizes. I think also, you know, obviously the prize only started in the late 90s. So there are so, so many novels that um, could be up there. But I think I read a long time ago in the early 80s, a novel called The Madness of a Seduced Woman by an American author called Susan Fromberg Schaffer. And it was one of those books that um, it's essentially an unreliable narrator. It's very much a novel that would be completely at home now with the maybe too many novels where women trust their judgment wrongly. They make bad calls. They're being ghosted by their friends. They're being ghosted by husbands. You know, I, I, I fear for the number of narratives that are about women actually not being on top of their lives and, and, and very easily duped, if you like. So much gaslighting going on in fiction. But Susan Prombeau Schaffer's novel, A Long, Long Time Ago, had all of those ingredients. And it was one of those books that I just didn't understand why it hadn't taken over the whole world. Um, because it, it struck me very much that this was um, an extraordinary way of writing. In the same way that when we need to talk about Kevin won the Women's Prize in um, 2005, I think it was, that sense of the woman as the unreliable narrator that you can't necessarily trust. Now, we know Agatha Christie did that way back when uh, with the murder of, uh, murder of Roger Ackroyd, but I think these modern contemporary female voices which say women don't have to be perfect. It's not women's job to save the mess of the world. Uh, women can fall too and still pick themselves up again. So, you know, those two, I think Wuthering Heights and um, The Madness of a Seduced Woman. I don't even know if that's still in print, but so far ahead of her time. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We'll be back to Kate soon, but now it's time to tell you about my Steal of the Week. This week, it's Standard Deviation by Catherine Heine, which you've just heard me rave about to Kate. Graham lives in Manhattan and is very happily married, he thinks, to his second wife, Audra. Gregarious, talkative, forcefully warm, very much the opposite of his remote, self-possessed, self-contained first wife, Elspeth. 
However, Graham sometimes longs for a little peace and thinking space in order to navigate the challenges of life, work, marriage and parenting his super smart, neurodivergent, origami obsessed son. To say this book is charming does not quite do it justice. It's sharp and gentle at once, irresistibly warm, it casts a spell and it is relentlessly funny. I fell in love with it. Heine's voice is entirely singular, but it made me feel like I do when I read Laurie Colwyn, which is honestly the only way I ever want to feel. Standard Deviation is published by Fourth Estate and out now. Now, back to Cage. I'm curious about this big shift, as you say, that that is something that was so underrepresented and now it seems to be all that there is. You know, books in that vein that I've just, you know, loved and adored. I think The Pisces by Melissa Broder, who's got a new book that I'm very excited about, and mm. possibly My Year of Rest and Relaxation with Atessa Moshevek. I mean, what I loved so much about My Year of Rest and Relaxation, in an entirely different way from Wuthering Heights, that sort of, I didn't know you were allowed to make this sort of story into a novel. I would have done it years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That is exactly it, Daisy. It's that the um, there is the sense of the writers who don't wait for permission. And I think that what often happens, you know, I've mentioned Lima McBride before for her women's prize winning book, A Girl is a Half-Formed Thing. But every publisher she sent it to said, no, no, nobody will want to read this kind of thing. No, but if you change it like this or that. And she just kept saying, no, this is my book. And it was 10 years before it found a publisher. And that's very much at odds with the other way of looking at publishing, which is a lot of people are very much encouraged to be, you know, want to be published at any cost. So when someone says, and I completely understand that, um, yeah, but if you change this or do that, and people therefore, their original vision for the book, and I think that's my year of rest and relaxation, very similar sort of story. And it's that sort of sense of, yeah, nobody's going to want to read a book like this. This isn't really a book, is it? Is it a novel? We don't know. And of course, sometimes, you know, it's about leadership in a funny sort of way. It's about going, okay, this is something we haven't seen before, or we don't think we've seen it before. Let's give it a go. Um, because it's, you know, there's all, far too much second guessing goes on that the readers only want this kind of book, you know, this, this amorphous thing called the readers, um, because they only want this kind of book because that's what they're being given, and then they might want something else. And we all know that we try, if we're lucky, we try lots of different books, and some you love and some you think are okay and others are really not your cup of tea at all and you can move on. But there's room for everything. Um, and the more variety, the better. And I think that's where independent publishers are so brilliant um, that quite often they, they are less driven by what appears to be the market force of this kind of book versus that kind of book and are more interested in maybe supporting different sort of voices and that's why prizes matter as well, because prizes give space for the things that might not necessarily find room on a supermarket shelf. A book I mention um, often, Duck's Newburyport by Lucy Elman. I thought, oh no, because it was so, so, so conceptual. And I resisted it and I resented it and I fell in love with it. And it's probably the most, a book, the book that I felt the most challenged by and the most rewarded by are there any books like that where you felt as though either the the concept or the structure or something made you a little resistant to getting involved and persevering but you're glad you did well weirdly in a way given everything I write and 
that I like big epic stories. I write adventure, I women-led adventure, all of these sorts of things. It took me years of trying and stopping and all the rest of it to read um, Anna Karenina. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> Did you? I had well, a really, I I, well, that is very weird because I don't. I, I don't think I particularly have ever said it. It's just more that I find a lot of the episodic nineteenth-century novels that were written often for serialization and over a long period of time um, just so rich, almost that I just I, I find it hard to drill down into the story. Um, and it took me years and years, but I did persist with it because I felt that I had to have read it. And now I've read it. But it always felt like it was something I should be doing. I never got transported. And I have not yet finished War and Peace, um, which, again, it, it should be utterly up my street, but it not so much. I find some conceptual fiction really hard on the page to read. I think the person who, for me, does that best because she is loving to her readers is Ali Smith. Yes. So, you know, she, she loves us, her readers. So although often uh, the nature of the sentence structure of the lack of chapters or the chapter, you know, all of those things are challenging and they sometimes are more akin to poetry than they might be to prose or certainly to traditional novel. I think that her warmth towards her readers helps over that. Whereas I find sometimes when I'm reading a piece of conceptual where I don't feel there is much space for the reader to bring herself to it, that kind of fiction sometimes defeats me. But I'm not going to name names because a lady never tells. <laughs> But I think so for and I think she's kind and she's funny and she makes everyone feel as though we're all on the same team. Sometimes with anything that's very, as you say, austere and conceptual, there's and this might not be fair of me and it might not be true, but I feel like there's an element of grandness and showing off and see how literary I am. And <laughs> I sort of expected that from Ali Smith, knowing how, you know, Garland yeah, no, and beloved yeah. she was and the kinds of people who loved her. And I'm like, oh, maybe not for me, but no, the the warmth of her and the... Yeah, that's it. And I don't know anyone else who uses humour like that in a way that just sort of undercuts you and startles you and it's so smart but so joyous I think also that the thing that is different is um with a writer like Ali Smith everything that she does comes from a place of complete integrity which is that this is what she is writing that's it there is nothing from the outside that influences it um and even with her recent quartet which obviously does have an overarching theme in terms of, you know, spring, summer, you know, so on. There is nothing but the words on the page that matters. And I think that, you know, we can all see as readers and those of us who are also writers, you can always tell when a writer is outside her book looking in as opposed to inside her book looking out. Um, and I think that the, the wonderful and great Margaret Atwood, um, her fantastic book called Negotiating with the Dead, which is about writing. And for my money, it's the best book about what it means to be a writer and, and how any of us might do it or what it means to do it. And she kind of finishes, you know, she essentially says, you know, 
the very end of the book, she's sending the book out into the world and, and, and describes the book as a child going off to school with its knapsack on its back and says, you know, not everybody will like you, but all you can do is be yourself. <laughs> and I think that is something that's really important with reading. And I'm sure all of your listeners hear lots of people say this and you say this, is that a book doesn't have to please everyone. A book needs to fulfill what you as the writer set out to fulfill. That's its job. I write to be read. I write stories that I, the biggest compliment people say to me is I couldn't put it down. That's my reason for writing, to tell a jolly good story that romps along with lots of, <gasps> and then, and when you finish, you think, whoa, you know. Other people write for different reasons. They write mm -hmm. to find things out about themselves or to reflect a, a reality that's missing in other books, or we all write for loads and loads of reasons. Um, but the only thing that matters is, is it the best book that you, with the skills that you have, are capable of writing? And that is the only measure we can set ourselves. Um, you can't write anybody else's book and you can't worry if not everybody loves it because it won't be to everybody's taste. But all you can do is when you send the book out into the world, be proud of what you've achieved. It will never be the best novel in the world. Nobody ever feels that, whoever they are. But even it probably Alice won't be the worst either. <laughs> You know, and and anyway, we shouldn't even judge like that, should we? But I mean, yeah, absolutely. So it's and you know this, Daisy. Uh, you know, it's 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 that, isn't it? About when you, in these days, press send. In the old days, you would go to your publisher with a pile of paper in a brown uh, A4 envelope. Um, it's that when you hand it over, are you genuinely handing over the best you're capable of doing? And that's all we can ask of ourselves. But I'm thinking about when you said, you know, about the. I couldn't put it down. You know, you at 13 with the Agatha Christie, what a yeah, yeah. glorious thing to want to sort of bequeath and share with your readers that that's that. Because I think I, I think a book can do so many different things. And it makes me a tiny bit sad that reading, I think, is regarded as a sort of very, but maybe a bit of an earnest hobby or something that's very sort of good for you. And because it's, um, when I've got a good book, it's, you know, in addiction, there are lots of other things where if I had a relationship like that, that I had with the book, where I was like thinking about it and avoiding all things to be with that, they'd be like, oh no, that's, that's a problem. That's an issue there. And <laughs> to write something yeah. that feels that addictive, to stay in someone's head and just to make them want to know and go forward and forward. I'm reading at the moment, um, at Lecture Party, uh, Exciting Times by Nurse Dolan. And I really feel yeah. that way about it. I'm trying to kind of eke it out because I'm dreading the finishing of it. Oh, that's interesting. You see, if I if I'm end up with a book, I'm I'm a terrible binge reader. You know, I I I can't eke it out. I find it so frustrating. Um, and one of the things that I think you're right about the idea of sometimes there's an earnestness about reading, but I think that that is a real mistake because actually. Obviously, there are people who have issues with literacy, and um, it's very, very important that the gift of literacy is given to everybody, and and these gaps are filled. And I'm really proud to be doing, you know, to have done a quick read before, and all of those things. So I think, you know, but leaving that aside, most people read every day, and I think it's the dividing the idea of reading into good reading and bad reading. So that reading a novel is good reading, and reading an article on your laptop or your tablet is bad reading whereas if we think of all of it as reading all of it's about um nourishing yourself through words then i think actually a lot of people who say oh i, I don't really read novels they're not for me wouldn't feel that 
um, you know, that somehow they, they're on the one step and novels are right up at the top on another step and poetry is even higher and you know, plays are right off the scale, you know, this sort of stuff. Almost everybody reads every single day um, in one form or another. So let's just see it all as reading and take away the sort of, you know, the, the uh, sort of the snobbery of, of good reading versus less good. I was just thinking about what you were saying about, you know, you're going off on tour, but this being a, a strange year, there's no, <laughs> the going off part isn't, isn't there. And I was wondering if you see any upsides or if you really, really miss the travelling mm. and also whether that takes any kind of barrier, if you think that makes your work more accessible for all readers now that we're all kind of, it's very democratic that we're all going to be tuning in from our homes. My new novel, The City of Tears, should have come out in May and we delayed it because we thought it'd be over by now. <laughs> and now it comes out um, on the 19th of January and, and all over the world in English on the 19th, 20th, 21st of January. And it is a very odd experience because, firstly, there, there are upsides as well as downsides. It has made me realise how much I took for granted travelling, how much I took for granted being able to fly somewhere, go to a bookstore, meet readers, meet booksellers and have a nice meal afterwards, go somewhere else, that I was seeing other places, meeting new people all the time because of this. And, and I had got quite tired um, a little bit worn out with all of that and was thinking, oh, God, you know, I can't I can't do this again. I'm getting I'm too old to do all of this. But it's good to be reminded, you know, when we all start to realize we're doing it about everything, just seeing a friend for a coffee or a glass of wine. We have so much, a lot of us. And it's become we've just we've just become used to it. And so now all of these things have gone. It's It's good to be reminded of how much we have compared to what a lot of people have. One of the things that I think is fantastic about the opportunities of it all having to happen from the computer is that, as you say, it can be a lot more democratic. I'm a carer. Um, I care for my 90-year-old mother-in-law who lives with us. And uh, my life is very much dictated to by that and by um, arrangements that that necessitates. I have been able to do twice as much this year because I haven't had to leave. So every event I've done, every interview I've done has taken as long as it's taken. And Granny Rosie's in the kitchen next door. Um, and depending on the time of day, you know, do I have a coffee or a, um, at the moment a whiskey mac actually, because she's trying to finish a jigsaw that's been taken all of everybody's energy and it's got to go this jigsaw tonight. <laughs> but in the old days, it would have meant I don't live in London. It would have meant traveling to London, traveling back, making sure somebody else could be here in my place. The whole thing would have been five hours at least. Now I can talk to yeah. readers all over the world. And so with my publication tour, which is happening exactly where I'm sitting now, I'm doing events all over America, in uh, Ireland, in the UK, in France, in Germany, in South Africa, in New Zealand. The only challenge is the time difference because I'm an early to bed, early to rise sort of girl. Um, and I realised that one of the events I'm doing is, um, is going to be midnight my time and I will be barely awake. But mm -hmm. I have done a couple of events and where people have said, for those of us who have caring responsibilities like I do, uh, for those who have children um, and without necessarily support, who are not free to go to an event in the evening in, you know, hundreds of miles away or whatever, um, I wouldn't have been when my children were little, you know, all of those sorts of things. We do need to try to find some silver linings. You know, every time I walk on the Sussex Downs, 
I think, you know, the sky is clearer. And that's a good thing. I, you know, I wish I was in a plane going somewhere. But at the same time, because I'm not in a plane going somewhere, the sky is clearer. So there's, there's always benefits as well as deficits, even though this is a very, very tough time for people. I love all the razzmatazz of a book launch. I like, you know, I like the party. I like being in that situation to say thank you to everybody who's helped with the book. Um, I like that sense of a moment mm. where all in lockdown stuck on the fact that everything, every day just feels like day. You know, there's little uh, difference between days quite often. Um, so I'll do my best to enjoy it as I would normally enjoy it. And, you know, and I, the only thing that will not happen is I won't come back with lots of, you know, terrible presents that nobody wants from far-flung places. <laughs> and, you know, you can still sort of toast and celebrate um, a brilliant book that I think is, you know, a really a great gift to give us all when we need it the most. <laughs> we need something that's going to transport us and feel that immersive and, um, as you say, a an adventure to be part of. I'm gushing now, you see. Great. No, I'm, I'm, send it my way, Daisy. I very, I'm very much looking forward to the gush. It's the longest, um, the longest gap I've had between writing a book and publishing it in my career. And that's quite weird because um, it's not that I've forgotten it, but I've written another book since then. And so it's been like, whoa, yes, I really must remind myself of this book. Whereas normally that sort of process of writing the book and the proofs and then building up to publication, it all kind of happens relatively fast for me. That's quite exciting because I, I feel I'm going to be meeting my characters again mm. rather than having been in their company all this time. Um, I really like meeting readers. That's the thing. I enjoy bookshop events and, you know, theatre events and all of these things. I like, the, you know, talking to people saying I like this or I didn't like that, you know, even when they say I didn't like that. Um, so I, w I, will I will miss that, that live interaction with readers who've spent their money or to buy your book or gone to the library to borrow your book and want to talk to you about it. Um, and that, so, you know, that, that is the one thing I will miss. I did see on Twitter that you were um, a service where people can rent things for their Kindle. And I thought that was a really generous and thoughtful thing to do and I definitely find myself and just sort of despairing to the panic like oh what if no one buys my book please buy my book please but that you know libraries are so so important yeah. for readers and writers and also yeah. such a great space to you know discover new writers it's a low risk setting isn't it the library that you can just yeah. take chances and lose yourself in things are there any library books that you remember either you know when you were a child or a teen or recently that have surprised you and delighted you I was um lucky to grow up in a household where there were books and I went to a normal primary school in Sussex where there was a school library you know all of these things that again we all took for granted and have gone in a lot of cases a lot of schools don't have libraries anymore and many people don't have access ready access to books. My father was a great believer in Reader's Digest. So these kind of digests of books would arrive, you know, once a month. And they were like, that was like a library, really, because you dipped in and some you thought, what? And others you go, <laughs> no, sorry, you know, that's how I got into Jean Plady, I think, at one moment. And certainly Frederick Forsyth uh, came in that way. Um, I think the thing that, for me, that was so significant about the library, in Chichester Library, where, you know, I still do quite a lot of events there. It's my hometown. It's where I grew up. And I did all of my revision for all of my O-levels there and my A-levels in the library upstairs. 
And I think that it's very, very different now because of the internet. And although there is technology poverty and, and we shouldn't assume that everybody has access to their own computer and own internet and things because they don't. And that's again, why libraries are important, but people can access information and research from their chair. When I was growing up, it was about, you went to the reference library. And I spent many, many hours upstairs in the reference library at Chichester. Um, a, a modern building it is. It was opened by Asa Briggs in the 70s and it's like shaped like a piece. It's in the shadow of the cathedral. Um, and you can see the Roman walls from the, you know, the other window. And it's all glass and very, very light. Not at all my idea of a library in those days. You know, I wanted you no know, cobwebs really. And stuff, <laughs> but I spent a very, very, very long time in that library, you know, looking things up in the Encyclopedia Britannica. Um, and if I was doing a music project, looking up composers in you know, the 100 greatest composers in the world, you know, and biographies, you know, that, that would have been got, last got out last time somebody was doing a project on Beethoven or whatever it was, you know, this sort of thing. And that for me was really important part of learning how to learn. Because I think you learn differently in a classroom when there's somebody talking at you and you're being guided in what you're supposed to do. But that liberty to be able to go and sit in a warm, dry space, free, where everybody enters equal in the library. Nobody matters more. Nobody has better access than anybody else. It is genuinely the most truly democratic space that we have, even though they are being destroyed. Um, the network is being destroyed mistakenly, not understanding how they can be adapted, I think. Um, that was very, very important to me, um, th those books upstairs. And the favorite book I discovered that my parents in the end bought, <laughs> which I have used for much inspiration, was the Reader's Digest books too. Now see if I can get it in the right order. Myths, Folklore and Legends of Great Britain. And it was a big, black, heavy cloth book with a gold embossed, um, picture of a Viking with a helmet on. And then when there was a new edition, they took the helmet off because they realized it was the wrong helmet. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic moments of, you know, Britishness. And it was every myth and legend and bit of folktale from the whole of the British Isles. And I loved that book. And my parents bought it for me, bought me my own copy in the end, because I was always, because uh, you couldn't take books out of the reference library. You had to stay up there with the books in the reference library. And they bought me a copy and then it got lost years and years ago. And then my wonderful husband managed to find me a secondhand copy on the internet. So I now have the third version of this book. And, you know, I never, without the library, I never would have found that book. Because, you know, people say, well, everything's available. But if you don't know what you're looking for, it's very hard to find it. And particularly when you do things online, you know, it, it's brilliant at directing you to what you say you want. But that casual browsing where your hand just goes and it stops. And that, that book for me is it, Myths and Legends, Folklore of Great Britain. I want to know what happened to the helmet in the third version. Did it get restored or? No, no, they realised that they got, they essentially, the classic thing, which is, you know, always the problem about fictionalising history, that everybody's view about Viking helmets was taken from, you know, Hollywood or something with you know particular horns outside. It turns out that it's not what they wore at all in that period in Britain. So they've got you know horned helmet, I think it was, and it should have just been a helmet helmet, you know. So um, yes, <laughs> I can't remember. I, I haven't got my one within reach. Otherwise, I would hold it up to show you. 
it's somewhere about the place. It's a really big book, you see. That was that was the thing. It's the biggest one of the biggest books I ever had. I mean, I do think that with the library as well, it takes a while to to build up a relationship with something, doesn't it? And I know definitely when I was a teenager, things that I'd walk past and see again, and the sort of covers with kind of names were kind of get into my head, and you'd wonder mm. about them, and you'd find yourself wondering about them, and you know when they're a total mystery, and it would take that at wandering space and you know letting something just wander around in your head for a bit to kind of pick it up but the connection's already forming and i do think that's we, right we don't have right. that so much now and i miss and it's like you and ali smith you've got it it's it's not just about the right book it's about the right book at the right time for the person you are and if we bump into a book at the wrong time it won't speak to us but it so it's always about a relationship between us and the book and, you know, so that building up until you're ready for it, it's waiting for you. And that's it. They're in the library. The books are always waiting for us. <laughs> and the bookshops too. Huge thanks to Kate. The City of Tears is published by Picador. It's stunning, stylish, propulsive and imaginative. Beautifully written literary escapism. You will be genuinely surprised by how much you enjoy hiding from reality by reading about a French war. Thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. Your book is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. You can follow us on social media at Ybooked. And if you've enjoyed this episode, it would make my day if you left us a five-star review and it helps new listeners to find the podcast too. You can find a list of all the books mentioned by Kate at acast.com booked. Finally, I leave you with this from Muriel Spark. It is a good thing to go to Paris for a few days if you have had a lot of trouble. And that is my advice to everyone except Parisians. See you next time. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.